Hey there, you're listening to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. And as we return to our regularly scheduled programming, we have a very, very special interview with someone you all may know very well, and that is Jamie Peck from the Antifada. Um, we're going to be talking about DSA, AOC, the CIA, PSL, NPR, you know, everyone's favorite letters of the alphabet. But mostly we're going to be focusing on dual power, what it is, how we build it, whether or not it's possible in the United States. Uh, we're also going to discuss the founding principles of a communist party, new horizons in left media, new challenges in police abolition, what comes next, and of course, what is to be done. I think this is a very informative, insightful interview, especially for those just coming into the left. I hope you guys enjoy it. So what's up, Jamie? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I've been uh, been excited for you to come on. This has been like a long time coming, man. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm sorry I had to keep rescheduling it and stuff. Oh, dude, yo, me too, man. Like life <laughs> happens, especially now with, uh, you know, I mean, I know the vaccine, but just COVID and kind of going into this uh, getting out of seasonal depression, winter like seasonal depression and getting into spring seasonal depression. You know what I mean? So that's, uh, that's I mean, I'm, rough I'm feel, lucky but. enough to not have that, but I <laughs> sometimes do get depressed about the things that are depressing in my life. And yes. it really gives me respect all over again for people who have to navigate that. Plus your brain is sabotaging you. Yeah. So yeah. fucking th- kudos to you, man. I think uh, Tanya would have it in, a, in an episode uh, said raw dog egg reality. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't understand how people do that. And I was like, yeah, I, I dig that. I feel that. So I was I, I was listening to NPR earlier today and I bring this up, Aaron, because I feel like one thing we have in common is we're just sickos who like to hate read and hate listen to like horrible lip shit. Yes. And like, I don't know, there's some stuff I like on NPR. Like you can get a little news, whatever, like, you know, take the international coverage with a grain of salt, certainly. Yeah. But I'm like, all right, what's going on in the world of news that people are talking about and knowing about. And um, sometimes you get news and sometimes you get like a weird uh, fucking word game mm. that they're playing because they think they're so clever. Yeah. And um, that's that's what I got today. There was like, oh God, they were like talking about, I forget the fancy word for it, but like when you spell a word backwards and it um, spells a different word, an it's not anagram. a palindrome. And it's like an anadrome or something. An anadrome, okay. And um, they were talking about people who named their kids like other names spelled backwards. Why? Like this is a this is the thing. Um, and they were going over some of these names, and one of them, uh, some guy named his kid Delora because that's Harold spelled backwards. And what they the were fuck? like joking about the yeah, it gets better. They're joking about the parentheses or the apostrophe in the name. And they're like, well, that's going to give some computers some trouble. Ha ha ha. I'm like, this is the whitest shit ever. Like, <laughs> oh no, an apostrophe. It's like fucking Y2K all over again. It's, can't it's, also like, that. it's also like, why would you, why would you like, like ruin your child's like childhood, like their childhood by giving them this weird alien like sounding name that's going to get them made fun of like all throughout grade school. Yo. I don't know because they wanted to name her after her dad. And, you know, you can't can't name a girl Harold because that would be weird. Um, Haroldine. 
maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Or just like fucking come up with a new name. I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, they were talking about some uh, someone called in about how you say the plural of the mouse that you use with your computer. Uh. And is it mice? Is it mouses? And like one of the guys. Mice. I mean, my sounds like the right thing, right? Yeah. But then she's like, but no, like that sounds like I have mice in my house. Like, all right, well, it's the same fucking word. Um, and this this one of the hosts was like a tech guy. Mm. He's like been in the tech world <laughs> yeah. for a really long time. And he said the history of this is like, oh yeah, the tech people. Yeah, I, I guess it should be mice and that's like correct if you look it up in the dictionary but they wanted to say they wanted to make everyone say mouses and so like that's correct too somehow because they like enforce their weird version of language on everybody yeah yeah and he's like this is what i love about tech people they just love to goof around and i was like jesus christ that doesn't sound like goofing around that sounds like tyranny like you're imposing <laughs> like you know what i'm saying like the tyranny of vocabulary and semantics mm-hmm. to people who do not give a shit mm-hmm that's right. Yeah. Now everyone has to be confused about it fucking forever. But um, that's that's just our new overlords. You know, they think they're goofing around and they're doing tyranny. That that applies to many things in tech. Exactly. I mean, in tech, and I mean, just especially when I had this conversation with you is because, uh, I mean, the tech industry is definitely like these are our future, well, current, like master, like, you know, like our overlords. But there's definitely like, you know, the capitalist class, like writ large and I mean, you're in DSA, right? You're an organizer, right? We both have our criticisms of DSA and uh, AOC has been popping up in the news and, you know, Democratic Socialists have been kind of going at her, like, and for good reason. But somebody DM'd me and um, they said, hey, man, I think you should do an episode about AOC and dual power and electoralism. And I was like, yo, this you would be the perfect person (sighs) to talk to about this stuff because... You know, we'll get into it later, but it's like on the one hand, yeah, sure. I was like excited. I don't live in her district, but I was excited, you know, to see like a self-described democratic socialist. I mean, you know, she's more of a social democrat, but whatever, right? Like, okay, this is cool, right? Bernie, this is great. But I think you and I, like that social democratic, like that, that's not our horizon, Mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes I'm sure I don't know if you do it, but I know I do. I got to take a step back and I got to like, you know, I got to like recollect myself, you know what I mean? Like wave the red flag, pull that out of my back pocket and say, all right, let me let me get this straight, you know? Like let me let me reassess the situation because as we'll talk about, electoralism is probably not the best or even a viable route for the world that we want to see. Not because AOC herself is an evil person, right? But working from the inside without mass politics, without a labor movement, right? Without an organized, class-conscious working class is not really the way to achieve the things that we want. Deadass. Deadass, right? Deadass. And like people are like too obsessed with her on both ends of it, right? There's people who like her, who like stan her or whatever. And they're like, this is how we get socialism or, you know, I, I mean, a lot of them are libs too. So they're like, this is how we get, you know, left liberalism or progressivism or whatever. And they're like, yeah. And anyone who criticizes her is like a traitor to the cause or yeah. uh, a wrecker. Like, how dare you? How dare you say anything bad about her? And then there's people on the other side who like really expect a way too much from her yeah and then get mad when she doesn't do it and it's like guys guys this isn't this isn't how we do the thing exactly like this is fine this is cool but it's may or may not 
bear any relationship whatsoever to abolishing the value form, which we need to do if we're going to unfuck the world and save humanity. So maybe like take come down. You know? Exactly. Exactly. She's a she's a Democrat. Right. Like she's a congressperson like Bernie's a senator. They're not fucking Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like grow the fuck up. Right. I mean, I know that's a little bit harsh, but we'll, we'll let's get into it a little bit. Sure. Sure. I want to start with DSA because a lot of the ire from the left online and thank God, like a lot of this is like strictly online. Right. Like most people, majority of people, working class people do not like know what the fuck we're talking about at all. Right. Or other people are talking about online. But AOC and DSA have been kind of casted as like the final boss of the left of a lot of extremely online leftists. Mm. And as a member of DSA, as myself, like explain to me, like, I guess you could talk a little bit about not just what your chapter is doing, right? And the stuff you're working on, but how you envision DSA generally in this nascent socialist left movement that we've seen probably since Occupy, honestly, but that kind of coalesced and crystallized itself in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And now we're just kind of like floating in the wind, not really knowing what to do, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most representative example of that, I would say, well, too, really, like the Bernie campaign really united everybody Mm. in common purpose, even though we did not take the time as an organization to come to any kind of practical unity on why we supported the Bernie campaign Mm. or our theory of change or how that might lead to our goal, our stated goal, which is socialism, right? Like uh, there were some DSA for Bernie uh, chicks. I shouldn't say chicks. That's that's sexist. It's okay. You You're know, not going to get canceled on this podcast. There were some, okay. some DSA for Bernie broads <laughs> yeah, in, uh, <laughs> in a North Brooklyn DSA meeting a while back, obviously, because this was when he was running the second time around and before the pandemic when we still have meetings in person. And I asked him, like, because most of what they were talking about was like, the nuts and bolts of how we were going to organize and help Bernie win and you know how he would affect like certain campaigns that we're doing. But I'm like big picture, like how does this get us from A to B? How does mm-hmm. this help us uh, get socialism? And one of them did not have an answer for me at all. Yeah. Like I stumped her and I'm and the other one, like did it a little better, but like, how is that not the first thing that you think about when deciding whether to work on a certain electoral campaign as mm-hmm. a socialist organization. Yeah. It's kind of whack, but I guess I digress. Um, <laughs> so like that, this really, it did bring people together in some way. Cause we all wanted him to win mm-hmm. even, you know, even fucking assholes like you and me, Aaron, yeah. we wanted him to win. Yeah, yeah. We were cynical. I was always cynical about it. I'm like, it's probably not going to happen. It's definitely not going to win, but and, even if it somehow miraculously does, it's not going to be what people think it is going to be. But um, we wanted that to happen. We all kind of pitched in and then uh, he lost and we got owned real bad. Mm -hmm. And then people were just immediately at each other's throats again, uh, trying to cast blame for why that was. And then we had the George Floyd uprising. Mm -hmm. I guess that's how we're colloquially referring to it now. Although it was Obviously, there were a lot of other people who got killed who were on people's minds. Mm -hmm. Um, And the DSA, I mean, I saw a lot of my comrades out at these protests, but as an organization, it was really caught on the back foot about a lot of this stuff. So I think the biggest challenge going forward is how is DSA going to relate 
to the next uprising and the next cycle of struggle because it is coming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add something to what you said, because um, I do want to talk a little bit about we don't got to spend too much time on it, because I don't think that focusing too much on DSA kind of loses the big picture. And I think as as Marxists, I think it's not necessarily approaching things like ad hoc, or like as they like arise, but um, also that this, you know, this organization might not be the and it probably isn't most likely is not. I don't think it is. It's not going to be the organization that's going to like you know, pave the way for revolution, right? For increasing class consciousness, right? Like, it's just something that exists right now, right? And we can't see what will happen beyond it until it happens and we do the work to build that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, TBD, but I really I really think the Vanguard right now is not uh, anyone carrying a DSA banner. I think it's the people who uh, looted and rioted and burned down police precincts yeah. and smashed up cop cars. And I, I don't know how many of them are currently members of <laughs> the Democratic exactly. Socialists of America, but probably not a lot. And like, how does an organization like DSA relate to that, knowing that there's a certain degree of spontaneity involved and illegality involved. Mm. And um, like, we're not even going to be able to begin to figure that out as long as we've got like people who work at NGOs and uh, people who want jobs in the democratic party and people who want to be like sort of this new, uh, this new left wing, this new progressive machine, Mm -hmm. uh, this new pressure group within the democratic party. Like that's not going to happen. Like even, even the, this like weak ass resolution, about uh, creating an anti-fascism working group, which I don't believe that there's been much progress on this since it passed at the convention. Mm. But even this resolution, which I like critically supported, like I, I didn't think it was really going to do much, but I was like, you know what? Let's let them try and mm-hmm. see. Like, I'm not going to work on it probably, but I would love to see what people do with this. Mm. Uh, even that was controversial because there are folks in DSA who don't want the organization to be associated with anything even like accused of being a paramilitary wing. And it was right around the same time that there was all that fear mongering about Antifa. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, well, like I think, I think the problem, one of the main criticisms that I have with DSA is like, you sent me this article from regeneration mag titled everyday ruptures, putting base building on a revolutionary path. And I'll put it in the show notes, but there was this really interesting, I think they were talking about the Marxist center, which I guess is like this um, collaboration or, uh, assumed collaboration of like autonomous collectives, I guess, throughout the country. Um, I'd never heard of it before, but um, this this is kind of an indictment, not just of the Marxist center, this article, but I think also like organizations like DSA. And um, th- in the beginning, the the writer talks about an apolitical approach, right? And I thought that was very interesting. And by apolitical approach, it's focused narrowly on organizing the unorganized and base building. But we have to go beyond that, right? Like, if you're not able to, like, connect that base belt, base building to, like, people's actual material lives, you know, um, you and you lack a politically coherent sort of message, right? And you have all these autonomous collectives that are just responding as, like, crises pop up. It doesn't really leave for any longevity or a lasting organization or really, like, a future on which to build upon, Right. When the time comes, right, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, right, when the time comes where 
the bourgeois, like capitalist, like class, the electoral system will have to be replaced by something new, right? Like a worker state, right? Yeah. I think that's that's one of DSA's main problems, man. I understand that people have a lot of criticisms with that because as much as my chapter and other chapters around the country did amazing, like mutual aid and amazing things, like um, with you know, especially with tenants unions during the crisis and during the uprising, it was sort of like there's still no cohesive message, you know. And I think that, again, to go to that, not wanting DSA to sound like a paramilitary organization with this like kind of um, with this uh, anti-fascist, I guess, declaration, it's like you can't even figure out or national, I guess, can't even figure out what path to take. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it is a big tent organization, which is, you know, it's got its pros and cons. Like I came into the left probably through one of the smaller tent kinds of networks that exists. I'm talking about like uh, some, some friends, some comrades of mine who I knew through my now ex-husband, <laughs> what I might call the New York City ultra left. And I was like, wow, they're not even trying that hard to include me. And like, <laughs> I'm Sean's girlfriend. Yeah. Like they really didn't seem to have that much interest in building a broader coalition whatsoever. Yeah. And that's got pros and cons, you know, like, you know, everybody, you trust everybody, you keep it tight and you have like a kind of political, practical and ideological unity that is, you know, makes things easier. But then, you know, it's bad because you need more people. So then I joined the DSA and kind of had the opposite experience, right? Because there's almost 100,000 DSA members nationwide, I believe, last time I checked. Um, But it is a really just written with contradictions. And I wrote a little bit about this in my... um, my article that I wrote about the convention a few years back. I think I sent it to you. Yeah, you did send it to me. And I'll link it in the show notes too for people to check out. Sure. I mean, there's, we, it literally has everything like mm-hmm. from people who are basically liberals, sorry, mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to like anarchists, uh, Marxist Leninists, uh, non-denominational communists to the point where like when some hilarious person at some sort of uh, ultra left gathering decided to take a a pretend picture Mm. like where they made a banner uh it said dsa and prim caucus (laughs) and post with it did you see that yeah i did see that and they like started a twitter account like some people thought it was real because dsa literally does have like every fucking tendency you can possibly think of and you know sometimes that's a good thing because we don't want to be like some little insular subculture we want to be we want to expand. We want to have a lot of people on board and on our side, and we don't want to be alienating to anyone. Um, but it can also be bad sometimes, especially when uh, things pop off, things mm-hmm. heat up a little. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to really like, how would DSA relate to illegal shit? Like, is yeah. there anything in our charter that says our members can't engage, can't, like participate if there's rioting, looting and burning of police stations going yeah. on. Yeah. Like, and, and someone asked me that and I'm like, I actually don't know. It just seems like it would really be frowned upon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for them to even comment, right. For him, them to even, I mean, even as like, it's definitely like when I'm chilling with my comrades, you know, we're having beers and stuff like, you know, we're casually talking about like the potentiality for violence. Not that any of us are going to do it. Right. But Sort of kind of like, yo, what needs to be done, right? Like, what's actually going to happen? I feel like DSA is an organization putting out a statement on their website about this, which is a serious level of engagement 
would be frowned upon, right? Because after all, they're the democratic socialists of America, right? Mm-hmm. Right. They're they're trying to. Yeah. Well, well, I they, feel like DSA is like KFC at this point, <laughs> and that it really doesn't stand for what it used to anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's an empty yeah. signifier that you can fill with whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully communism. Yeah. But go on. Let me ask a question about party building then, because that's something that um, I was thinking about reading that article again that I'll link that you sent me, because like, again, DSA is like not or I mean, you know, PSL or Socialist Alternative, like none of these organizations, in my opinion, I can't tell. The, I can't see the future. Right? I can't predict the future, but they they just don't. The way that I view history and, and social movements, it just doesn't seem like this is going to be anywhere near even like an incipient form of some like revolutionary like class movement. Right. Th- this is just like kind of like just the not even beginning stages, the beginning, beginning stages. You know what I mean? Yeah. And party building is something I've been thinking about because rather than DSA or any of these other groups that are listed, like, what do you think an ideal revolutionary party would look like? How would an ideal revolutionary party approach principles, right? Approach, uh, um, would there be a tendency on which it would lean upon? Should there be? Hmm. I mean, that's a good question. Yeah, it's a hard question, too, because I don't fucking know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I'm not anti-party. I'm not anti-organization. I think we certainly need organizational forms. They might look a little different than they have in the past. Um, But I really like the idea of the party as articulator. I should have sent you this article. Maybe Mm -hmm. you read it in Viewpoint Mag. I think it was by Salar Mohandesi, I want to say. Because there are so many forces working to disarticulate, disunify, Mm -hmm. break apart the working class. And mystify, yeah. Yeah. The party is supposed to be sort of an explicitly political organization or even a federation of organizations, uh, it might look different in the future than it has in the past, Mm. that sort of ties all these different struggles together, um, right? Whether we're talking about workplace struggle, a racial justice struggle, whatever, whatever, ties them all together and coheres a political vision and praxis, um, both in sort of a give and take Mm. from what people are doing on the ground. Um, The idea being... You know, something like a labor union is not inherently any kind of communist project. Mm. It's like workers organizing for better wages at work, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and the party kind of adds more political content there and ties these struggles together. So I'm really interested in that idea. Um, and I do think there should be some ideology mm. driving this Um I'm not one of the people who's like, no, this is a science. Ideology has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Like, mm, I don't know, guys. Like, I feel like that's kind of an ideological statement in and of itself. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I would say that because I'm like a fucking galaxy brain (laughs) utopian who fucks with communization theory. Um, But what I was going to say, yeah, I mean, we need like a strong, certainly a strong anti-capitalist ideology, which which I do think is starting to cohere. Mm -hmm. But that in and of itself, it's like, all right, what do we want instead? Mm -hmm. Um, I think people don't talk enough about what communism actually means. Mm -hmm. Like I had a tweet the other day where I said I was trying to clarify some shit. There was some discourse. I feel like Megan Day tweeted something dumb about defund or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's not important. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was saying, you know, uh, 
abolitionists don't just want to replace the police state with the welfare state. Mm. You know, we want to destroy the bourgeois state and ultimately the state itself and establish a stateless classless society. And that's called communism. Exactly. And it surprised me how many people replying didn't even know that that's what communists want. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, I mean, like people will talk about all the time. I'll correct people because people will ask, you know, they'll ask me even like, you know, uh, uh, democratic socialists, socialists, you know, progressives, right. Left liberals. They'll be like, you know, like without even being antagonistic, but they'll ask, you know, why do you subscribe or believe in this? Like, you know, this ideology, you know, that um, has never worked out in the world. And I'm like, well, dude, like communism is moneyless, classless, stateless society. It's never existed. Right. I mean, you can go back to like, you know, hunter gatherer society. Right. Like mm-hmm. this primitive anarchism, but or primitive communism. But it's never existed in society at all. You know what I mean? Like not in the form that we envisioned. Those were socialist societies trying to achieve communism. Right. Yeah. And that's even debatable. I mean, it is how humans lived for the vast majority of our history as a species. That's absolutely true. But it would be the first time that we'd done it on purpose. Yes. You know? Yes. Like, I feel like back in the day, um, humans, they evolved to live that way because that was the best way to survive. It wasn't because they were better people than we are now. Mm -hmm. It was because of the material conditions of their world. Mm -hmm. And I think even though we are doing it in a more intentional way right now, I think humans are at least potentially going to decide that we need to live in a communal way again, because once again, we have a survival impetus to do so. And we're probably not going to make it otherwise as a species. Yeah. Yeah. I I always, um, you know, there's that age old question of whether people are naturally good or evil. And I've always thought that like, man, people are just naturally cooperative. It's just towards what end. And the fact that, as you said, like, I wish everyone took anthropology because questions about, you know, are, are, is capitalism natural? Like, are people naturally greedy as well? Right. That question. It's like, well, dude, we lived like this for tens of thousands of years in the collectivist way. Because like when I've said this before, I said this actually in an episode with Sean, right? The first episode, I used this example when resources were scarce, right? Tribes had to work together in order to find those resources, right? But when resources were more abundant, there was more conflict. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, we just happen to work together, man. You know, it's just towards what? For what purpose? What reason? You know? Yeah. None of this is natural. No, it definitely isn't. I mean, I don't I don't love arguments from nature because I feel like they could be used to justify our sorts of like fucked up shit. Like evolutionary yes. psychology gets a really bad rap because you associated with like Jordan Peterson and other yeah. people. But it turns out they're like usually not using good science to begin with. Yeah. And one thing that I really do believe is that humans are deeply social creatures. Mm -hmm. There's tons of anthropological evidence to back this up. And part of why we're all so fucked up and anxious and depressed is because capitalism dissolves social bonds. And we are alienated from one another and we can only relate to each other through the market. Uh, It's not hard to see how that would make everybody like lonely and fucked up. So just, just one more reason why we need to do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So about the thing then, man, this, this, this idea of dual power, uh, I don't know, man, I, I, I'd see, you know, sometimes like the real, like, um, you know, theory minded leftists on Twitter, I'll see threads, you know, about this and this idea, this concept, I think, um, 
Black Socialists of America, not Afro Socialists of the DSA, but Black Socialists of America. I think they often talk about if I'm if I'm wrong, somebody will correct me in the comments. But I think they often talk about dual power. And I kind of had to refresh my memory. And um, as a, as a I'll give a quick primer and then we can talk about it. Um, after the the revolution, I mean, there were a series of revolutions in Russia, but after the um, the czar was deposed and him and his family, uh, you know, <laughs> what happened to them? Uh, there, there was the provisional government, which, which was the Duma, right? Which I guess they were. I mean, I don't even, I don't even want to call them like conservative socialists. I mean, they were essentially like still in favor of the monarchy. I mean, they were part of, part of the monarchy. It was just sort of realizing they they were pushed in a direction that made a return to that sort of like system untenable, right? But then you also had the Soviets, right, which were the workers' councils and the peasants' councils and the, you know, the soldiers' deputies, right? And these two governments, this bourgeois government that was, quote, official, right, versus this sort of spontaneous, like, worker-oriented, extra-political, counter-hegemonic, like, coalition, right, of workers, soldiers, and peasants, right? That, those were the Soviets. And there was this tenuous alliance, right? There was this tenuous alliance where... There were promises made, there were, you know, treaties signed, but there was always the possibility that either the Duma would strike out when it was most advantageous for them and seize power, or the Soviets would have to do it. There's this great book by um, China Millville called October, which is a, it's sort of a, it's it's a narrative, a creative narrative, I guess, nonfiction narrative on the Russian Revolution. And there's this one scene he describes where there's this worker outside of Petrograd that grabs one of these Bolshevik representatives and says to him, seize power when it's given to you, bastard. Right. And I guess that was the challenge for the Bolsheviks. Right. About when to seize power. Right. With this dual power kind of system. So is that a viable system for the United States? Like, what would that what would that even look like? Not right now, but in the near future, right? What would that what, what would that even look like? I can't imagine that happening here. No, me neither. I mean, not to be a doomer about it, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, the conditions are very different. And, you know, I get it why people are fixated on the Soviet model because they fucking won, mm-hmm. at least in some sense. They were victorious. Were they successful at, ultimately at... Um, bringing about global communism? No, they were not. And they didn't say that they, I mean, obviously they never said they achieved communism even in one country because that would be an oxymoron. Can't have communism in one country. Um, But, you know, they did some interesting, made some interesting moves, certainly towards this kind of social transformation, despite having a lot of odds working against them. Mm. Really, they were fucked like when the German revolution failed, I think. But, um, you might know more about this history than me. Um, yeah, I don't know that that's, I don't really see that happening necessarily yeah. uh, in modern day U.S. Like, uh, I mean, one thing that is different is that the old system really was collapsing, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't it Lenin that said power was in the street yeah. and we picked it up? Yeah. That unfortunately has not happened here despite like very high levels of cynicism and disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. Like there's uh, half something like half of the working class or more than that doesn't vote or half of everyone doesn't vote. And that's (laughs) disproportionately, um, you know, the poorer you are, the less likely you are to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And people like a lot of people don't vote because they don't think it's going to fucking do anything. Yeah. And they're probably right. (laughs) Yeah. But they don't see any like the government. I don't want to say people they don't like it, 
but it has legitimacy and that it has power still because there's like nothing challenging that power. So like people recognize that the existing uh, bourgeois institutions we have, I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people recognize that they're bad, <laughs> and yeah. especially right now, mm-hmm. right? When um, we're having a real reckoning on the purpose that the police and prisons serve exactly. in the society. And people are realizing maybe this cannot be reformed mm-hmm. because it's been tried over and over again. And it's very obviously not working in any way, shape or form. Um, so we have that, but as of yet, we don't really have any kind of institutions of dual power or counter power Mm -hmm. that I think could ultimately be part of a strategy for challenging the power of capital. Now, does that mean that we never will? Not necessarily. And I think we should still be trying to build these things to be doing um, autonomous labor organizing, tenant organizing, um, get like some real mutual aid going that working class people could actually like rely on to get their basic needs met Mm -hmm. outside of the NGO sector, outside of the state and federate them together into something kind of durable and lasting. Like I think that would be a really positive step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm like not going to hold my breath. And I feel like things, if things do go down, Mm -hmm. um, they're probably going to go down in a very different way than they did before. Cause we're just running out of time. Yeah. Like I would yeah. love to lay all this wonderful, beautiful groundwork, but like we can all feel that a collapse is coming. Yeah. I think um, we talked about it the other night on the phone. Like yeah. you're not the only person who's been asking me about this, Aaron, yeah. Yeah. like yeah. a lot of my friends and comrades and even my friends who didn't used to be that political, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, ha- I, I realize I have a certain degree of confirmation bias <laughs> yeah. people I hang out with. <laughs> yeah. But like... But we're right, though. We're the adults in the room. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, and people are asking us. People look to us now to kind of answer some of these questions. I'm like, oh, what the fuck do I know? Exactly. Um, but I think, I think maybe it was Andy. Maybe it was someone else. But I feel like it's something Andy would say. Was like, I think we're going to live to see the collapse, but not the revolution. And yeah. I was like, mm, that's dark. Yeah. But like... My point being, we're running out of fucking time, uh, but it's still worth doing. And like another thing I should mention about these institutions of counterpower is they don't just serve. I mean, they serve many purposes, right? They serve to keep people alive, which is important during over the course of struggle. They serve to delegitimize the bourgeois state and they kind of transform people's consciousness mm-hmm. in a way and get them to realize and believe in their own power as workers and as decision makers in their world, you know? So we can't, we, we can't necessarily predict um, what's going to spark a revolutionary scenario or when it's going to happen, but we can kind of lay down some kindling and some groundwork so that when it does happen, hopefully it it goes the way that we want it to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I was, while you were talking about like, you know, a lot of people, like we talked about the other night on the phone and a lot of people have been asking you this, even people that aren't um, necessarily comrades. And I feel like climate change is um, kind of a big part of that, but just generally just worsening material conditions and widening contradictions, right? Even if people, I won't say that working people, they, they feel the contradictions, but maybe having the time um, the, 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 the privilege, frankly, sometimes to be able to kind of peel that back and analyze it really. Right. But besides that, people still feel like this, this ambient background noise of constant dread, like this creeping dread, you know, 
that things are getting like unimaginably worse. And I mean, I think that like, you know, laying like we obviously don't know the future, right? But laying the groundwork, particularly in terms of like counter power and alternative power, right, to the state is really important. And I, I mean, if we're going to talk about I want to ask you about this, too, because if we're going to talk about dual power, like I want to talk about the state and like how to kind of view the state as an anti-capitalist leftist. And I really like that article you sent because one of the one of the definitions that I, you know, often go with from uh, state and revolution is that the state is there to manage like um, class relations, right? In favor of the ruling class, which is the bourgeois class, right? Mm -hmm. the, the state also uses violence, right? Employs violence, special bodies of armed men, the police, right? As Lenin called them, or if we're talking about like the imperial project, soldiers, right? An army to like enforce this capital, uh, capital accumulation. But the state, besides violence, also employs ideology, right? Which is why like, you know, People, poor people are sometimes meant to feel and themselves really do feel like hopeless, right? Really do feel like they like it's their fault, like they've done something wrong, right? So I guess like I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Like how should we you can say that not every socialist is a communist, right? But I've heard that every communist is socialist because it's a dialect, a dialectical process, right? But the anarchists, right, like. I don't know if you get this a lot because you seem to be a little bit more in that camp, right? As like, you know, an yeah, anarchist, I'm right? Anarchist like, adjacent, I would say. Adjacent, right? And and the, the constant beef is, even if it's like kind of play beef, is like, well, what are you going to do with the state, right? How are you going to utilize the state? Is there an argument to be made for, let's say that somehow we're able to, you know, um, build this counter hegemonic movement, right? Let's say that um, at this moment of rupture, which I want to talk about in a little bit, this idea of rupture that we're able to seize power, like what the fuck do we do with the state, right? Is it possible for the state to be anything more than the expression of capitalist hegemony, right? Is it, or is it that we take over certain essential state services, right? Um, put people in actual power and kind of allow it to wither away? Like, how realistic is that? I, I know all these questions are really hard, man, but the United States just seems like, it seems like you're just chipping away at a mountain range. And there are these institutions that are just so intrinsic and endemic to the way this country operates that I don't really see how you can, like, co-op them, right, for our end. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's a pretty important question, I would say. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll also say that it's probably not going to be up to me or you uh, how Thank it goes God. down. Yeah. But I do <laughs> think it's important to the degree that we have any influence for modern-day communists to learn from the past. Yeah. And, you know, reading State and Revolution, I liked it a lot. And I was like, you know what? That makes sense. Uh, you got to have a dictatorship of the proletariat uh, as an emergency because the state is an in instrument of class rule. And, you know, Lenin said we need to seize state power and use it to have a dictatorship of the proletariat. So it, instead of the capitalists dominating the workers, it's the other way around. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Got to deal with the counter revolution. And then once we have abolished classes, the state will naturally wither away because there will no longer be any need for it. Now we have to look at what happened in the 20th century, which is that didn't happen. Yeah. It definitely 
definitely <laughs> failed conspicuously to happen. So what's up with that? Mm-hmm. You could say, oh, well, you know, it's it, it, it's it's just purely purely these external factors they had no control over. Um, you know, it's capitalist imperialism. They were beset from all sides by this. Um, the Soviet Union had to become somewhat authoritarian in order to survive mm. and less a dictatorship of the proletariat and more a dictatorship of the party over the proletariat. Yeah. But like, when is that not going to be true? Yeah. So, but also like we have... Like, this is why I think it's really important that people are communists here. Like, this is a really important country in the global domination of capitalism. And if this country were to fall, I mean, certainly as long as capitalism exists anywhere in the world, it's everybody's problem. And it certainly would be for us. Mm -hmm. But I think things would look very different if we had a country in the imperial core be the first to fall in a revolution. Now, beyond that, I don't know. It Like, it really needs to be global, though. Like, I keep coming back to this idea. Yeah. And I do think it's really important for us to think through the logistics of revolution, too, mm-hmm. which a lot of people, even in DSA, even in, like, the left of DSA, are really squeamish about talking about, like, with good reason. Like, people go to jail for this mm-hmm. stuff. And we're definitely being spied on. Yeah. Um, even though we're not talking about anything illegal, um, we're definitely being spied on. And like, it is like in the general sense, I guess we are talking about something illegal because as this fucking Karen pointed out in a post they, where they were complaining about me on majority (laughs) report, um, revolution (laughs) equals treason equals crime. So Yeah. yeah. And who, and who, who 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 creates crime? Like who who designates what a crime is? Right, you the know what I mean. The fucking state. When people talk about this stuff, it's like, what do you to who? Like it was a crime for the slaves to rise up against their masters. Exactly. exactly. But they were they were breaking the law. They were breaking all kinds of laws. But exactly. uh, you're really gonna say they shouldn't yeah, have done that? Yeah. Back then, she would have. I mean, and there are people who's yeah, like there are people who absolutely will even say it now. <laughs> like people who are like, well. I'm against communist revolution because it would be violent. And I'm like, oh, well, um, were you against the slave uprisings? This happened online, of course. And someone was like, yeah, I mean, there are other ways they could have they could have freed the slaves. I'm like, we literally had to fight a war. We had to fight a civil war. Fuck off, man. We we, we put the civil war off for like 100 years after the importation of slaves, which supposedly was supposed to end at... um, during what was it? It was like eighteen, like oh eight or some shit like that. It's in the fucking like constitution. Like that's when we were supposed to stop the exportation of slaves, and like we did, kind of. Except there were like you know like illegal slave trades like all over, like especially like you know fucking coming in from the north to the south. But it's also like we put that off and then had to fight a civil war to get rid of this prevailing like dominant like system, you know. Or I guess it was like. A co-system, right? With like industrialization in the North. But we had to fight a fucking war. Well, I think bourgeois ideology is such that there are people who would be like deeply offended if you compared uh, capitalism to chattel slavery, despite the two being very interlinked. And despite uh, the continuing racial oppression yes. that goes into uh, capitalist exploitation. Yes. Yo, I had somebody at a job one time, one of my coworkers. He's kind of ribbing me, but I've heard this like seriously from like, you know, from folks like even like black people, right? Like black liberals 
who will say like, you know, uh, when I call it wage slavery, right? You know, when I, when I call this slavery, they'll be like, how can you say that? Especially as a black person. And I'm like, dude, I'm talking about like chattel slavery, right? Like being treated as like actual like fucking property versus being treated as an extension and a tool of capital accumulation. And those things are a lot closer than you actually fucking think, right? Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that you are like literally in chains, how about you go and ask your boss for a raise? How about you go try to form a union with your coworkers at the grocery store or the supermarket where, or, you know, wherever you fucking work. Right. And let me see how that shit goes down. You know, what yeah, I mean? there are people uh, reports from the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, which is mostly staffed by black yes. and brown people. Yes. About how they're not allowed to go to the fucking bathroom. Yep. So, like, I don't know, man, how much freedom do you really have at work and how much freedom does the underclass have at work? Not that much. But I feel like I got off track of the question I was trying to answer about the state, um, (laughs) as I often do. Um, I think, okay, I'm not against a dictatorship of the proletariat. I think that's very important. And and a dictatorship in the sense like it's it's kind of a weird translation um, because like we think of like the colloquial meaning of dictatorship and it's like. Yeah, an authoritarian. Like an authoritarian, like, you know, autocratic. Ruler who rules forever. Yeah. But what uh, Marx and Lenin meant when they said it was it's a temporary emergency kind of state of affairs kind of situation Mm -hmm. just to get the capitalists and the counter-revolution under control. And after that, you know, things we can move on to the next phase of social transformation. Um so, yeah, it, it, it's a million dollar question, right? Like, how do you form a system of governance that is strong enough to fend off the counter revolution, but does not curdle and solidify into something bureaucratic and authoritarian um, that is, you know, very hesitant to give up power? What, like, why would why would it give up power? Why would the, why would people give up power once they have it? Mm. And like, I'm hoping I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but this is why I fuck with communization theory because communization theory is basically, what if we could do this and skip some steps along the way? What if we could communize the world? 12 easy tricks. Yeah. Like what if we could communize (laughs) the world directly? What if we, and it would involve like a chain reaction of revolutions happening around the world. Like anytime a revolution pops up anywhere, it's got a time limit on it, Mm -hmm. right? Until it degrades either from within or Usually from without because it gets, uh, you know, a CIA coup done to it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like, what if we could do that? And that's why I really like um, insurrection and production, because it takes some of these more like galaxy brain ideas from communization theory and puts them into practice with a focus squarely on production. Yeah. Because I do think there are communizers who fetishize like riots and looting and don't really... Uh, think that much about what happens a few days later yeah. when the grocery stores run out of food yeah. and everyone gets tired and hungry mm-hmm. and gives up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the angry workers really put the focus where it should be, I think, which is production yeah. and logistics and all of the supply lines and all the different ways that the capitalist class has broken up these tasks um, intentionally to make workers think that they could, it's so complicated. They could never possibly run it on their own. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, it's going to involve a whole lot of 
study of supply lines of class composition. What kinds of jobs are people doing? Mm-hmm. Um, what countries are these people from? What languages do they speak? Who do, who do they know in other parts of the world? And like, where does the food come from? Yeah. And if we could somehow manage to take control of the most important necessities, the most important supply lines, um, I think people would, I mean, the working class would go along with it. If, yeah. if we're like, oh, join us because it's the right thing to do. We don't have a plan for how we're going to feed you. Yeah. That would be like a much bigger ask, I think. But the idea is by communizing the world directly, um, you can skip the step. You can create the irreversible, mm-hmm. as the invisible committee said in uh, first measures of the coming insurrection. Um, abolish the value form. Abolish all of the things that are keeping the working class separated from each other in the process and bring about communism without this intermediary step that we might never get out of, which is really like fucking difficult. Like I understand why some people think it sounds crazy, Mm -hmm. but like every road to communism has a step. That's a question mark. Yeah. Yes. Including, including like the traditional Marxist Leninist route, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, state socialism, question mark, state withers away, yeah, communism. Exactly. I think it's just in communization, the question mark comes a little sooner in the steps. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you were saying that, uh, like kind of attacking these nodes of like capitalist production, I think like, I mean, I'm not a fucking like, you know, like a, a medical like person or anything, but I think an analogy that works is like, you know, cutting off like all these arteries, right? I guess that like, lead carry blood to the brain uh to the uh to the heart and kind of cutting those off right and essentially causing a heart attack right because when you attack those like very specific nodes that allow this thing to continue this heart to beat when you're able to do that you have that blockage at some point you're gonna have like a rupture you know and i guess uh because i gotta i gotta head to this this protest soon but i guess i want to finish off on two really important things um I want to ask your opinion on this because that piece that you sent me, I really like the Gramsci idea of war position versus war of maneuver. And I kind of think that that synthesis like is what's needed, right? Because it is essentially about when the capitalist class is incredibly strong, right? Not only using um, the threat of violence and actual violence itself, but also um, cultural hegemony, ideology that as in the West, right? That probably one of the best things that you could do is kind of like hunker down in the trenches, right? Whereas in the East, right, because these systems were already weakened, as you kind of mentioned, it was a little bit easier, right, in the Soviet Union for the Soviets to take control because they were already coming from a a, a strong position against a weakened state, right? But actually, again, like this article I'm going to link, there's a synthesis, right? This dialectical kind of process that you need both. Right. Especially when there are ruptures. Right. When there are ebbs and flows, which are either created by the capitalist system itself or either. Well, I mean, these are created by the capitalist system, too, like uh, natural disasters. Right. Especially with climate change. But it's sort of about utilizing these small and large ruptures to kind of erode and break the relations that run the state. Yeah, I like that idea. I I will say um, I'm sort of agnostic on this article's um view of the state yeah like it's it's interesting like lenin and the anarchists viewed the state in basically the same way mm-hmm. as an instrument of class rule sort of a monolithic thing that must be 
either taken over and then done away with or just smashed immediately. Mm -hmm. Like I was actually surprised how anarchist state and revolution was when mm -hmm. I read it. And I was like, this fucking slaps. I like <laughs> yeah. it a lot. Maybe not everything Lenin did, um, you know, lived up to that, but that's okay. That's a conversation for another day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll have, we'll have it in another couple episodes. Yeah. 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 Um, I'll, I'll read more articles and we'll, we'll trade, trade ideas back and forth. But, um, this article, and I, I think it's an idea that comes from some famous Marxist thinker who I forget, mm. maybe Althusser mm -hmm. seems like something he would say, I don't know, but the idea of the state as not this static and monolithic thing, but as a social relation yeah, I that think, is generated yeah. by the conflict between classes. Yes. And as such, um, it, 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 and it's not a monolith. It's full of strong points and weak points and, um, you know, things that are the results of workers saying, Hey, this thing's going to keep us alive and things that are the result of, uh, you know, just pure oppression. Mm -hmm. So, like I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it because I'm not totally sold. And I feel like it could be used to justify some very reformist tactics, mm -hmm. right? Like, like the critique of the defund campaign. And I'm still very like, not sure what I think about this either, mm -hmm. but like there, there, I mean, the idea behind defund campaigns. So things that are incremental in that they are short of revolution, yeah. revolutionary activity, like the, the stuff that we're working on right now, uh, to defund the NYPD involves taking money away from the parts of the state that kill people and transferring them to the parts of the state that keep people alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the critique of this is, well, and they're doing it with an abolitionist horizon in mind, right? They're not like the liberals who just think that that would be enough. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're hoping that that leads us, you know, connects up the present with an abolitionist future. Mm -hmm. um, the critique of that is several several different things but i mean one one critique is that these other organizations like the welfare system the public housing system food stamps all these things are also very carceral yes in their orientation and used to uh, police and surveil the lives of the poor and racially motivated as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fucking lutely. Yeah. yeah. And anyone who's dealt with any of those um, institutions knows mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. is true for a fact. Mm -hmm. um, so like the question is, uh, does that make this not worthwhile, this incremental step? Or does it just mean that we have to do it in a way that somehow still delegitimizes the state as a whole mm -hmm. and keeps our eyes on the revolutionary prize. I don't have an answer to that, yeah. but I am like, I, I've heard good arguments on both sides and we've hosted a number of people with varying opinions uh, about this on the Antifada podcast. Yeah. yeah I, I think that like, you know, one of, um, I mean, one of the best kind of arguments to guess reforms for like reform's sake, right, is the idea that these reforms can start to institutionalize themselves like they kind of calcify. Because the reason for the reform in the first place is that it's the co-optation of radical energy and a radical movement, right? I mean, we saw this throughout the 30s and the 70s in this country, right? And how these movements were diluted of their radical energy and then turned into state social programs and services that were then means tested heavily, right? And racialized in such a way that one, one has to ask themselves, right, is the horizon even in like a socialist state, right? Is the horizon just social programs in a welfare state, right, that can also kind of sour and become as punitive 
right, as the liberal forms before it? Mm -hmm. Or is this just kind of this intermediary like way to kind of seed more power back to the people, right? Until like they are the ones themselves that are like not just kind of weaning off of like the government, right? Right. The nanny state. But they are the ones themselves in their own autonomous like zones facilitating these programs. Right. For people. You know, I, mean, I think it's an open question yeah. to be perfectly honest with you. And I'm yeah. jealous of people on both sides who think that they have the answer. I really yeah. am. Yeah. Um, maybe I just need to just stop talking to half the people I know. And then I'll be like really sure of myself. Cause yeah. you know, most people's opinions are just like an aggregate of all the smartest people's opinions that they know. Yeah. And like, I don't think I'm special no. in that sense, but like, I do think it is really hard to predict this stuff. Um, and, and like, okay. To bring in something that may or may not be related. I think, um, I don't mean to keep shitting on Megan Day here. I'm sure she's a very nice person. Um, she gave me a cigarette one time at the socialism conference. Hey, comrade. That was very nice of her. Nice. Um, was it a menthol though? Because I hate menthols. Like, if it was I don't... not. It was not a menthol. Okay, thank God. Because like, if I'm out of cigarettes and I ask someone and they have a menthol and I'm like, God damn it, man. Okay, fine. I guess beggars can't be choosers. I'll take the cigarette. You know, I don't mind. A, I don't mind a hint of mint, but um, I'll say. All right. She was getting like, I don't know if it was a ratio per se, but people were like mad at her um, for tweeting about how like because the support for the Black Lives Matter and the support for these these movements has gone down mm. since the beginning, since the height of it, mm. um, which is something that we need to reckon with. Mm. And she I think she was wrong in her conclusion, but she was right to be trying to reckon with it when she said well, I think it's because defund is a bad slogan and it's too easily confused with abolish. Jesus. And everyone hears, yeah, everyone thinks you're trying to abolish the police and they get turned off. And I'm like, well, we are trying to do that. Um, I think if anything, I think the reason the popularity has gone down is because like the opposite thing, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it, at the height of it, when people were really excited, like it's exciting to see mm -hmm. if you're, a, you know, a regular working class person who hates the cops, mm -hmm. which most people kind of do, although, you know, they have confused relationships with them. But. Yeah, but no most no most working people, I don't care if you're black or white, like, you know, if a cop is trailing you and pulls you over, you don't say, thank God. Yeah. Thank God an officer is here. You're like, oh, what the fuck did I do? You know what I mean? Yeah. So like to see that kind of open rebellion, yeah. that kind of violent, it like pre-insurrectionary rebellion Hell yeah. against this thing that previously seemed all powerful mm. was very exciting and very inspiring for mm. people. And I think only once the kind of counter-revolution took hold and the kind of NGO sector got its hooks in it and turned it into a liberal reform campaign that's when people were like, all right, fuck this. They're the ones that were doing the the, the, the ones that co-opted it. They're the ones doing the sloganeering. Mm -hmm. Right. Like people would accuse us of sloganeering with defund. Right. But at least that's an actionable item. It's not passive. Like, you know, and again, like I'm not shitting on like obviously like, you know, the uh, Black Lives Matter, although I'd like to call it like, you know, a black liberation movement. You know what I mean? I'd like to call it that instead. But even that slogan, I mean, you had Netflix, you had fucking, um, you know, other like private companies like Netflix. I remember had a had a Black Lives Matter category. Right. So did Spotify. Right. At that point, when it's been co-opted to that like level, you have to ask yourself, well, and Megan's right to do that. Like, why has enthusiasm gone down? Right. And 
I mean, it's also kind of posing or implying the question, like, what do we do next? Mm-hmm. Right. What yeah. What can we do? You know? Yeah. What is to be done? What is to be done? I mean, it's a fucking million dollar question. Right. And like what I mean, if you if you follow it to its logical conclusion, yes, in order to abolish the police, in order to envision a world without police and prisons, we have to have a revolution because Indeed. this is the thing that is propping up capitalism. Capitalism is propping up it like we got to do that. And it's not that surprising to me, you know, via the transitive property. If you took a poll right now and said, do you want to overthrow capitalism? That It wouldn't pull that well in a population, <laughs> you know, inculcated with bourgeois ideology from exactly. birth. So, exactly. but like that doesn't, mm, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, you know, exactly. like exactly. not with that attitude and people's consciousness. This is another thing that I'm kind of getting from like the EndNotes crowd that I like a lot. Uh, or, or my friend Jared at Heartcrackers has written a lot about this. People's consciousness can be transformed. Mm-hmm. over the course of struggle and how they finish might not be how they start. And we've seen many examples of this um, throughout history. Um, the example he likes to use is, you know, there were Northern whites who fought in the civil war on the side of the union mm-hmm. and going into it, they had some attitudes that we'd probably consider problematic mm-hmm. or racist. They were like, we're fighting to keep the union together. By the end of it, they were like singing songs about how they freed the slaves and how that's great. So like what happens in the course of that? What kind of transformation of consciousness? And I think the same thing could be true of somebody who goes to uh, a riot because they're like, I just want to get some shit for myself. Yeah. And what are they going to be like on the other side of that? I don't know. And I would love to like follow up with some people who've engaged in these kinds of activities because, you know, I think it's really important to know what the proletariat is thinking uh, what people are, what people are, you know, what's on, what's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, because I really think it's a similar kind of thing. You know, it's got the building blocks for something very transformative. Um, even if people don't realize it at first, mm-hmm. and even if they're not going into it saying, I'm doing this to, you know, to defy the basic, uh, logic of the market and capitalism. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing this to overthrow the hitherto existing order. Like, no dude, I just want a fucking TV and that's fine too. Actually, I want to link this to, since you're talking about, it, I really want to link that spring breakers episode you did with a uh, friend of the show, Jake Flores, because like sort of like this idea <laughs> that like, yo, like fucking stealing TV and looting shit and like, you know, like wilding out on like a beach. I mean, you know, amidst the pandemic, yes, sure, okay, you know what I mean? But still wilding the fuck out and saying, like, like that girl said, like, the police can't stop us. That's pretty fucking badass, yo. We need that energy. Keep that energy for the revolution, please, yo. I gotta say, you know? And, like, it's an open question whether something like Spring Break could produce the same kind of consciousness as something like police killings. Yeah. But, uh, you know what? You never know. Anytime I see a mass of proletarians uh, defying the state, so flagrantly and joyfully, you know, I got to pay attention. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, JB, to close out, I want to ask you, this is uh, so much of a question as sort of more of a closing out. Like, I want you to, like, talk about this a little bit. So you were you were on the Majority Report as a co-host for uh, a couple years and um, you exited that position. Um, and I don't want to so much ask you about that and what happened but more so well two things more so uh what do you what do you think is the role of independent media right um in 
cultivating some sort of revolutionary culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that isn't isn't just about raising class consciousness, but I mean truly in all the ways that culture touches people's lives and brings them together. Like how independent um, left media can do that, and secondly. Uh, what are your what are your plans next? What are you doing next? Well, that's a very good question on both fronts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we talk a lot about this at the Antifada, right? Mm-hmm. Because just getting on YouTube or a podcast mm-hmm. and saying your political opinions doesn't necessarily mean that you're part of a leftist uh, revolutionary project, um, right? We're doing this within a capitalist framework. We're all siloed off into our own Patreons, competing with one another Mm -hmm. for subscribers. And the people who are listening, um, you know, maybe it makes them feel less less upset, less alone um, in their alienation, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily spur them to act. And yeah. it doesn't necessarily connect them with one another in any kind of meaningful way. Like, yeah. oh, we're all fans of this show. I'm sorry, that doesn't fucking count. Exactly. Like, I have pretty high standards for what I mean when I say um, community. Like, we really need to break these um, these bonds of capitalism and mm. reform new ones. Um, so, like, we talk about this a lot. How do we do something that actually helps rather than just personally enriching ourselves and making people feel more comfortable in their alienation, you know, just like religion or anything, any opiate of the masses Mm -hmm. podcasts perhaps are the new opiate of the masses. I don't know. Um, And it's very hard to do that when you're not connected to any kind of real movement or party. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people making leftist media, I don't want to call anyone out, but they don't even do shit. In the real world. They don't do shit, bro. They don't do anything. But they they have Yeah. And like, what's up? What's up with that? I mean, I'm not saying that I'm like the best organizer, but like at least at least we fucking do it. So props to us for that. I mean, yeah, props to like anyone out there, man. Because I I I I again like society the spectacle, people know this is my hobby horse, but like that really does make me think that like radical politics cannot come from consuming radical content. Right. Like instead of asking people to like go out and like talk to their neighbors, talk to their coworkers, like asking them to listen to this podcast. Right. Asking them to watch this YouTube video. Sure. If, you know, people are curious and helping explain things to someone who is curious about what you personally believe in. Like, sure, I've had coworkers that if, you know, they they always see the shit that I'm wearing or the shit that I'm like talking about, like offhand. And we'll be like, oh, like, what is socialism? What do you believe? And everyone's talking about politics nowadays. Right. So. Yeah, sure. You know, people ask me stuff and I recommend things, but that's not the same as like organizing like, you know, with like your fellow tenants or organizing with your coworkers for a union or like, you know, talking to your community members about like police violence or maybe the fact that there's not a fucking supermarket in our neighborhood, at least not for 10 miles. Like posting is not praxis, right? I know people like that meme, but it's a meme because it's like not fucking praxis at all, dude. Yeah. You don't achieve anything by posting. Yeah, no. Um, absolutely. And it's also like a very individualistic mode of engagement Yes, that almost encourages people to behave in antisocial ways. Yes. And that's not good. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it myself. Oh, I'm super guilty but, of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I do think it matters a little bit or I wouldn't be doing it. Yes. Um, and I have heard from plenty of people who said, 
oh, you know, I wasn't too sure about this socialism stuff. And then I listened to the majority report. And through that, I found the Antifada or the Michael Brooks show. And now I'm a socialist and I'm in a union and like Hell all this yeah. cool stuff. So I think that it does happen, uh, yeah. but we shouldn't like oversell it or mistake this for the most important thing. Um, and I would also like to see us all become less atomized if possible. Yes. Like what if, cause I know everyone's like, I'm a personality and mm -hmm. I'm always right. Mm -hmm. But like, what if we actually got together as leftists in media who want to unfuck the world. And what if we got together with, I mean, I'm describing the party now, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, but people circle. doing the people doing all these struggles. Yeah. And what if we decided, you know, what are our strategic priorities? What do we think about this thing? Mm -hmm. What do we want to be pushing right now? Mm -hmm. Like it would make a lot more sense if it were connected, both all of us, you know, media folks connected to one another and connected to a movement, mm. to the real movement to abolish the present state of things, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So I would love to see something like that. I think, you know, we have an incipient community because that's just, um, you know, that's just human nature. Yeah. Like I love talking to all of my friends that I've made you, mm. um, Brett from Street Fight. I talked to him on the phone for a really long time the other night. Yeah. He's such a solid dude. Love the Street Fight guys. Uh, Andre. Hell yeah. Um, who else am I friends with? Virgil. Love that guy. He's my yeah. special party boy. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Virgil. Um, and the Trillbillies. Oh, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> everyone at Trillbillies and Pod Damn America. Mm -hmm. I could go on. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's nice to feel like we at least have a community for ourselves, but we really need to be uh, setting the bar high and, and, and always asking ourselves how we can do better and how we can become more rooted yeah. and connected in the practical activities of, of the left and of the class. Yeah. And like, you know, it, like I'm not going to beat myself up because like there's only so much that I can do about that personally, but we have to try. Yeah, we have to try. We do. So, so Jamie, what do you have planned next then, man? Speaking of we have to try, right? And kind of creating like this kind of grounding, right? Rooting oneself, right? Rooting ourselves, right? What, what do you got planned next? Well, that's a really good question, Aaron. Yeah. And I know you know the answer to it. <laughs> I do. Because you and I are working on a new thing together with our, yes, we our pal Andre. And uh, we should be doing some test streams pretty soon. Yes. That everybody can watch and be nice because, you know, we haven't been doing it for very long or at all yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I feel like it's going to be good. I don't know. I'm like also just like saying, saying yes to a lot of stuff right now, yeah. like going on other people's shows, mm -hmm. seeing who I vibe with, trying to, trying to stay busy. I'm not getting paid for any of this stuff, which is not you yet, know, Jamie, not going to have to, going to have to, well, I'm not, I'm not calling you out. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. No, um, I know, but yeah, I know. I mean, you, did a huge solid for me <laughs> when you read the fucking Obama book yeah. and talked about that. So one hand washes the other. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's like the way that we have gotten around this like weird capitalist siloing that happens with Patreon and shit, yeah. which is like, we all go on each other's podcasts and help each other out with our content. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm just like saying yes to stuff. I don't know. I've been doing a little bit of co-hosting with uh, Katie Halper. Mm -hmm. Gonna see if she wants me to keep on doing it or what. Um, I've been, I don't know. I went on a central committee the other day. 
Mike from PA's Twitch. He's got like a zillion followers now. It's crazy. Yeah, I heard, um, and I used to think he was like kind of a boring electoralist, but he's like pretty based really? these days. Okay. I like, yeah, I like his tweets. Yeah. We, we talk and, and like he clearly listens to my podcast, which is more than I can say for some people whose shows I've been on. <laughs> it's such an awkward thing, like having somebody on who's never like, l- like listen at all. Right. Them having you on, they've never listened to your show. At yeah. All. I mean, I was, um, I was throwing shade on Sam, but yeah, I'm sure there's been others. Yeah. 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 No, at one point in time, like he, I, I was, I kind of called him out for it, which is like, you know, he's like your boss, you know, you shouldn't expect your boss to be your dad as well. Mm-hmm. But I was still like annoyed that he'd never listened to a single episode of my show. Yeah. And he's like, if it makes you feel any better, Jamie, I haven't listened to Matt's show or Michael's show either. So what the fuck do you do? Do you just go home and <laughs> listen, watch MSNBC? Like, I don't understand. I, I mean, he's got kids. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he actually does adult shit. Yeah, that's true. He does adult shit. And I was like, fine, <laughs> fine. fine. Understandable. But um, it was like, it was really nice to go on um mike from pa stream and like realize like i'm so i i'm i'm like a puppy that's been kicked over and over again i'm like oh wow you listen to my podcast like yeah, yeah uh he likes it yeah. a lot of people like it it's good yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. we work really hard on it and i think it's pretty good so i'm like kind of regaining my uh self-esteem and my self-confidence a little bit right now in a way that i needed to do but also like i took a little vacation with my best friend yes you did Spending some time with friends is always nice. Yeah. Um, saw a lot of friends actually because we road trip back mm-hmm. up the East Coast. And like as my life has become crazier and crazier, I have been like, I mean, I already valued my friends, but I value them even more because like I know that I will never become a sociopathic media personality because my friends would not let me. Exactly. Exactly. I won't let you, JB. Neither uh, I or Audrey. And uh, yo, man, like you were saying this earlier, but like, you know, your show, because I found Majority Report first and then found the Antifada through that. And like, you know, that show has been very formative besides like as a working class person and working in kitchens in New York and Georgia. And then like actually like, you know, getting my hands in some organizing, like listening to like your show specifically has like helped me just be a better comrade. Right. A little more thoughtful. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm fucking psyched to work with you and Andre on this new project we got going, man. This is just going to be tight. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Let a thousand YouTube shows and podcasts bloom. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so Jamie, uh, to close out, man, where I know we've talked about it already, but where can people find you at? Plug some shit so people can check you out. Although I'm sure they already know. All right. Yeah. Um, you can find us at patreon.com slash the Antifada or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just type in the Antifada and it will probably come up. Um, we also have a Twitch stream. We really want to get more viewers on our Twitch so we can spread the spread the word about communism and also make money. <laughs> I don't know if that's dialectic or what, but <laughs> it's super real. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, twitch.tv slash the Antifada. Uh, we stream like four days a week. Usually Sean plays video games on Monday. Um, we do our main show with the full crew on Wednesdays. We do, I do Antifada Ladies Night on Thursdays, usually, although it's like, I need to just move the time because I have meetings every other Thursday for defund and that's um, kind of annoying in. to deal yeah. with. 
Um, and then Fridays, we have Pop Culture Party. It's like Andy and Courtney Soliday's show. But um, I, Sean and I usually come on mm. too because it's fun. It's Courtney comes up with fun games for us to play about like celebrities or whatever. Oh, cool. um, so we stream at 7 p.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Antifada Ladies Night is at 8 on Thursday. I'm saying it right now. That's what I'm going to stick to. Um, Twitch.tv slash The Antifada. And you can watch us on there. And we're also starting to post more clips to YouTube because we can't, we have a YouTube page that's uh, kind of defunct. And um, I don't know. I'm just thinking of more and more ways to fucking monetize my personal brand yeah. as I go. I got a little, uh, I got a little runway yeah. on leaving um, old job. So that's nice. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I just... Uh, talk some shit on Sam. So now I'll say I'm also very grateful to Sam for having, you know, helped me find a new career when my old one uh, wasn't going so well money wise and letting me use the studio for free for a while. I mean, this is a dialectic yeah, as yes, well, right? Dialectic. But, um, you know, uh, it is what it is. And I still have a lot of affection for the man. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, like given that that show, Jamie, but also like the just the the popularity of like your show too. you got like a lot of people that are very excited uh, to see what you're doing next, man, because uh, the Antifada is dope and y'all need to check out their Twitch channel because I've been on there before and I enjoyed it. It was very, very Aww. fun. Um, and yeah, check that shit out, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right, Jamie. Oh, thanks so much for talking to me, dude. Oh, anytime, anytime, <laughs> comrade. This was a pleasure. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to someone who A, I'm friends with, but B, has, you know, read the same books as me and C, has novel things to say about yeah. them. So good job on all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, as I always say, um, I am I am a member of the uh, the dumbass left caucus. Like all I can do is fucking <laughs> read because I don't know shit. I mean, eventually you realize, oh, maybe I'm not such a dumbass after all. And that's, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's where we get the galaxy brain. But I think, um, you know, imposter syndrome can be good. Yeah. Right. Like I'm more than halfway through capital right now because I'm Jesus. like, well, maybe once I've read this fucking brick, I won't have so much imposter syndrome. And you know what? It's true. I feel my brain growing every day. I, I put it down for a bit. I got to pick it back up. My brain is shrinking from not having read it, <laughs> not having like yeah. continued to read it. Well, I need to read it. Well, once I finish, I mean, you're welcome anytime at my yeah. rating group, but once I finish, um, maybe I'll run another one. All right, sweet. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for talking to me, comrade. Hell yeah. Um, be safe at your action, whatever you're doing now. Yes, yes. Try to be as safe as possible. I mean, I'm not expecting anything to happen, but you never fucking know. You never know. You never know. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.